This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you for your word in the book of James, which is so powerful and full of powerful imagery. We just pray that it may stick to our minds and that we may take to heart the really precious lessons here. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Are you comfortable? Are you? I hope you are. I mean, the aircon is very nice here. The seats are very comfortable. Even the blue Akia seats are very comfortable. The light is very, you know, muted and uh, pleasant. Now imagine how you would feel if I turned off the air conditioning and we replaced all these nice, comfortable chairs, which uh, actually, I, I must admit, these are the most comfortable chairs I've, I've actually sat in in church before, because usually they're all hard plastic ones. But imagine if I replaced all these chairs and we put these hard wooden benches for you to sit on. And instead of having this nice muted light, we just opened up the ceiling and you had sunlight. How would you feel? You'd feel uncomfortable. And I think that that is a problem in today's world because I was reading an article a few weeks ago which said that one of the pursuits and the goals of modern living is comfort. Uh, you know, I went to IKEA the other day to look for an armchair. What am I looking for? Uh, I, my wife might look for the best design, but I'm looking for comfort, right? <laughs> comfort is what we are looking for in this life. We desire comfort and we expect comfort. But the problem is, as Christians, we are extolled to live a life of discomfort at times. And today's passage deals with that issue of suffering. And discomfort, why should we suffer discomfort as Christians? And how do we go through discomfort and suffering as Christians? Well, verse 1 today begins by saying, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Now, the book of James is written by this fellow called James. And many people believe that this James is the brother of Jesus the apostle of Christ, and the leader of the early church. So if you look up here in Galatians chapter 1, it relates how Paul went to Jerusalem. And who did he see in Jerusalem? After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. We know who apostle Peter is. And stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. Now if this is the James that wrote James here, then we know that he lived in Jerusalem. He was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, which went through great persecution early on in church history. So in Acts chapter 8, which we studied a while back, it says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. So here is the background to the book of James. That there are a group of Jewish Christians, predominantly Jewish Christians who are from Jerusalem. And they've been scattered, they've lost their homes, people have been murdered, people have been dragged off and put into prison. And James the Apostle, the brother of Jesus, is writing to them. But I want you to pay close attention, how does he address them? He says, in verse 1, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, 
why does he refer to God's people this way, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations? Now, I think, and I'm pretty convinced of this, it is because he's comparing their present experience to the exile of the Jews when they were scattered out of Israel in the Old Testament. And for the Jews, that was a very great period of suffering, great period of discomfort when they were exiled out of the home country, the promised land, out into the different countries around them. Here in Psalm 137, right, it gives us a picture of the suffering that they experienced as they were exiled out of the promised land. Uh, if you listen to Bonnie M, for those of you who are oldies, you'll know this song, right? By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept, where we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing of us, sing to us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord when we are in a foreign land? And that is the suffering of people who are in exile. They are like refugees away from their home. And I think this is what James has in mind when he says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. What he's saying is, he's comparing the image of the exile to the present suffering of the Jewish Christians. He's saying to them that you are suffering because the world in which you live in treats you like a refugee, like an exile. You do not belong to this world because your home is in heaven. Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Now this is a very important first lesson for us because it shows us that we just like the Jewish Christians, are exiles in this world. Our home is not this world. And therefore, that is the explanation for much of the suffering that we receive as Christians. Because the world that we live in is not our home. It is heaven which is our home. So the world cannot understand how we give 100% of our loyalty to Jesus Christ. Ridiculous. The world cannot understand how our values are shaped by God's holy standard because the world's values are shifting and changing all the time. The world can understand the things that we believe in. We believe in the resurrection of this man called Jesus who we believe to be God. We believe that Jesus did great miraculous signs. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is divine. The world cannot understand that. And as a result, the world will... First of all, find us weird, but progressively find us offensive. So I remember when I first became a Christian, I'd actually been going to church for many, 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 many years before that because I'd gone to a mission school. I used to go to Wesley Methodist once in a while, Barker Road once in a while. And my, my relatives, my family were fine with me visiting church occasionally. But when I became a Christian, I remember my dad came up to me and says, it's okay, you know, that you go to church. We didn't mind you going to church before, but don't be a fanatic. I don't know whether anybody said that to you, right? Don't be a fanatic, right? Don't be radical. It's okay to be fanatical about Liverpool, 
But don't be fanatical about Christianity or Christ. And I think that that is the problem when you really give yourself to Jesus Christ and you adopt God's values and you really believe what the Bible tells you. The world thinks you are a fanatic. They think that, they, that there's something wrong with you. And C.S. Lewis uh, made this observation in a book I've been reading and I thought uh, it's such a wonderful observation but, but C.S. Lewis writes in such a cheap way, right? You, you have to read it a few times. But is uh, you know, a real solid goal here, right? As the real meaning of the Christian claim becomes apparent, its demand for total surrender, the sheer chasm between nature and supernature, men are increasingly offended. You see, in one sentence, he says so many things, right? Dislike, terror, and finally hatred succeed. None who will not give it what it asks, and it asks for all, can endure it. All who are not with it are against it. And I think that's very true, isn't it? Because when the world looks at us and it sees how we are called to surrender all to Christ, right? We just sang the song, we surrender all to God. They can't understand this doesn't make sense. You know, how can you believe in miracles? How can you believe in the resurrection of a man? How can you give all to God? And it's offensive to the world. So I think the lesson right from the very beginning <clears throat> is that in the biblical conception and worldview, there's no such thing as a comfortable Christian. Because if we live in this world, we live as distinctly alien and exiled people. And as long as we stay true to Christ, just like the early Jewish Christians, we will feel discomfort. Uh, C.S. Lewis once again uh, wrote, he said, you know, he doesn't like what he calls Weak tea Christians. Okay, this is a very British expression, right? Weak tea Christians. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, you drink your te o or your kopi o, right? You know, you go to the, to the store and you pay your 90 cents or dollar, and now it's gone up maybe a dollar ten, right? If they give you a cup of kopi or te, right, and it's weak, you give it back, right? Because, hey, you pay your dollar, you know, you don't, you don't want weak tea, right? Well, in the same sense, if you are an authentic Christian, not a weak tea Christian, not a diluted Christian, then you experience suffering. Because when you hold on to Christ strongly, then you don't dilute your faith, you will stand out in the world that we live in. You will stand out as an exile. So James goes on with the same theme of suffering. Right? Remember all these Jewish Christians are scattered all among Judea and Samaria and the rest of the ancient world. And he says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is shocking to me, right? Shocking. If you've lived any, any living in this world, you'll know that when you suffer you don't experience joy. Suffering is to be endured, not enjoyed. But when you look at this passage, the verb, considerate pure joy, is an imperative, it is, is a command. And even more than that, even when you look at your English translations, it comes first in the sentence. That means that James is giving it priority, rejoice in the face of suffering. 
But how can you rejoice in the face of suffering? Well, it is because it says here that suffering develops perseverance in your faith. And perseverance must do its work so that your faith will become mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the way that the Christian views suffering is that it actually builds up your faith so that it becomes stronger, harder, more rigid. Now, for those of you who go to the gym, right, you know that uh, when you go to the gym, what do you find? Do you find balloons? No, right? You find heavy weights. Because when you're in the gym, you want to stress your muscles, you want to in fact, discomfort your muscles so that your muscles get stronger. I mean, you don't go to the gym to lift balloons because nothing happens. But the same way that what he's saying is, trials are there, even bad trials that the Jewish Christians were going undergoing, to strengthen their faith so that their faith may be mature and complete and they will not be lacking in anything. Now, I remember when I first became a Christian, at my last year of university, I was very excited to be a Christian. It was a great thing. But my faith hadn't been tested. It hadn't forced me to persevere. But later in life, when I received opposition from family members, when I was ill with a stomach ulcer at different points, when I had uh, office colleagues who were less than complimentary of Christianity, it forced me to question my faith and to make my faith stronger. And I think that's what James is saying here. James is saying that we are, in a sense, to rejoice because we see that, that trials are actually leading us to a stronger faith. But look what it says there in verse 5 to 8. Sorry, yeah, verse 5 to 8. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now notice here what they are to ask God for. Usually when you suffer, what do you ask God for? You ask for the suffering to be taken away. That's normal, right? I mean, I ask for that. But here he says that part of the Christian response to suffering is that we also ask God for wisdom, God's wisdom. Because God's wisdom allows you to see your suffering from an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective, and it helps you to see how that trial is causing your faith to grow to maturity. Now, part of the problem is that worldly wisdom will see suffering as something to be endured. Worldly suffering will say, oh, you know, my suffering is not so bad because, you know, I lost my leg, but look at the person who's got no legs at all. Or worldly wisdom will say, well, you know, uh, be mindful. Don't worry so much about the past or the future. Just enjoy today. But God's wisdom looks at the eternal perspective and the heavenly perspective. 
and allows you to see your suffering in the light of God's perspective, which is this trial will actually lead your faith to strength. Now, the character of God here is that God gives generously to all people without finding fault. That means that you may have struggled, you may have doubted God, but when you ask God, God would give you that perspective. Now the trouble is that there are people, just as there were people then, who are like waves, right? They doubt God, then they go to the world, then they doubt God, and they are like moving around, they're not stable in their faith in God. So if you think of the waves of the sea, it's like this, right? it's, it's in turmoil. And that's the danger when you're suffering, you, you, you kind of like in turmoil, right? You know, you're like very confused. Any of you ever suffered where, you know, your heart aches, your head hurts, the world is very gray and dark, and you know, you know you're not really stable. And he says, look, don't doubt. The character of God is that he's generous. The character of God is that he's good. Don't, God, don't doubt God that he's bad. Put your faith in God. Put your foundation in God and ask Him for wisdom and He will allow you to see your suffering in the right perspective and you'll be firm and fixed in your faith. See, the picture here in verse 7 is of a double-minded person, right? A, a person that vacillates between God and the world. Right? It's like a pendulum, you know, like a pendulum? Right, the pendulum swings from one side, swings to the other side, swings from one side, swings to the other side. So, the person who is moving from the world back to God, God back to the world again, is, 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 he's vacillating, wavering one to the other, and you will never get your faith to grow in that way. And what James says is, no, we are not like that. We know that God is good. We know that God is generous. Put your faith in God, don't go back to the world, and you will be able to rejoice over that suffering because you see that you are saved. Now verse 9 to 11 seems like a strange, strange verse to tag along to this section. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. Actually, in the older translation, it says to their low position. So there's a contrast between high and low. Since they will pass like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Okay, so what's happening here is James is actually giving a real-life illustration of the struggle, the discomfort and the suffering that the Jewish Christians are undergoing and saying, okay, what does worldly wisdom look like? What does godly wisdom look like? So the Jewish Christians, they were expelled from Jerusalem, they're exiles, they're refugees, and as a result, they lost their homes, their jobs, and they're poor. They're suffering poverty. That is their trial. The temptation from the worldly point of view is to think, God has abandoned me. I'm, I'm humiliated. I'm in a low position. But godly wisdom, the wisdom from God above, says that actually they are in a high position. And that's why James says to them, look, you're in a humble position in this world, 
But take pride in your high position. Now how can it be? Right? How can you be low and high at the same time? You are low from the view of this world, but you are high in the eyes of God, in reality, in God's wisdom and eternity. And he says, cars, houses, cash, the riches of this world, they are actually things which are fading away. In the, in the light of perspective of eternity in heaven and God, all these riches that the rich people have, the, the ones who do not believe in God, they are low because they will pass away when Jesus comes again. And he uses this illustration. Actually, James is a very powerful preacher because he uses lots of powerful metaphors. right? So in, in the desert, usually the desert has no plants, right? But occasionally, apparently, in the desert, there's rain. Believe it or not, a bit like outside, right? It's raining. And when it rains, this happens. They're like, they're like great and beautiful plants growing in the desert. And the metaphor is that these beautiful flowers spring up suddenly. And if you look very closely at the passage, right? They, are, they have beauty. They have nice blossom and beauty. But the nature of these desert flowers is they don't last. Because, you know, in the desert, the flowers don't last very long. They're very beautiful in a short time, but soon when the rain stops, like it says here, right, the wind, the scorching heat and the sun will come and they all die. And he uses this metaphor to explain the short-term beauty of riches. It looks really beautiful now, really stunning now, but it will all pass and it will all fade away. Like someone said, a poor believer once said, when I die, I will go to my riches. But when the rich person dies, he will lose his. That's seeing things from God's wisdom, the eternal perspective from the heavenly perspective. Now, when we talk about ourselves, I don't think we're very poor, right? I think Singapore, highest one of the highest individual GDPs in the world, compared to the rest of the world, like, I, I believe we're probably richer than 90% of the people around the world. But the lesson here, I think, is, are we, from God's wisdom, in a high position or in a low position? And I think that's where the responsive reading came in as well. Because in verse 11, it says, In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. There's nothing wrong with being rich, but the rich person's focus is their business, not God. And that's why when we read the responsive reading today about the rich fool, he was very rich. But as we read, right? He was rich for himself, but he had no loyalty to God. And remember what we said about the weak T Christian? If you are a strong T Christian, your loyalty is to God 100%, not to your riches. And so, as we look at this passage, it's very important for us because part of the struggle of Christianity is the place of wealth and riches in my life. In God's perspective, in God's wisdom, how 
am I standing, am I in a high position because I'm actually given over to God completely or am I in a low position because riches are actually my God. Now in verse 12 to 14, it keeps going on, Blessed, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the, that the Lord has promised to those who love Him. Now, verse 12, in many ways, is a continuation from verse 2 to 4. Right? So I put this diagram up here, and I hope you can understand what's happening. So, in the beginning it said, you face trials. The trials result, in verse 2, to testing of faith, which then results in perseverance. Perseverance finishes its work so that you may become mature and complete. And here we see that after you've persevered under trial, in verse 12, after you've stood the test, you will receive the crown of life. Now, the crown is most probably a picture of the wreath that uh, in the ancient world, you know, they, they had the Olympics. Of, then, you know, you get this crown of leaves. It's a bit like, you know, even the, now at the Olympics, you get this crown, right, of leaves. Or like the next one, you know, you always see all these pictures of the crown, right, you know, best picture or whatever. But here, the passage says, you need to persevere and endure suffering as a Christian. Because waiting for you at the end is the crown, the crown not of leaves the crown of life itself, the crown of eternal life. And the picture is one of where the Christian life is difficult. All right. uh, if anybody tells you that the Christian life is comfortable, then that's not, that's not the picture that James has given. The Christian life is difficult. You will have to face endurance. You have to keep persevering, running. Because waiting for you is the crown of life. You just got to keep going on in the Christian life to receive the crown of life. It's not as if there's only one winner, right? We're all winners if you continue to persevere in suffering. Now, in verse 13 uh, till the end, the picture now shifts to a different sort of trial. Uh, unfortunately, in the NIV, it doesn't actually show us the original Greek language. It sort of uh, translated it for us. It's the same word. Uh, temptation and trial are the same word in the original language. But the NIV t- did try to do us a favor and clarify it for us. So in the first part, is about enduring suffering, external suffering, you know, poverty, uh, losing your house, opposition. But here, in verse 13, the, the trial seems to be an internal trial, temptation. In verse 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Okay, that sounds a bit interesting, right? We'll get to that later. But if each person is tempted, sorry, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full blown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from heaven, the heaven of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. 
He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits for all he created. Okay, now you need to follow the passage here. I notice some of you are looking at me when I'm reading the Bible, right? The Bible is not printed on my face, right? It would be good if you look at the Bible in front of you, okay? Now, internal temptation. Obviously, there were some Jewish Christians who, for whatever reason, someone was teaching them some nonsense, right? That God, okay, if God is in control of everything, then God must be the person tempting me. And therefore, if God is tempting me, who can resist God? I, I'll just give in to temptation. The passage here, again, uses two very strong imperative verbs, right? You should, no one should say this. And in verse 16, don't be deceived, don't be fooled by this. And it gives us two visual pictures, right? He says, look, in verse 14, uh, you are the one who is dragged away by your own evil desires and enticed. It's a bit like a picture of um, fishing or a hunter. It's like you, you're sort of enticed by a lure and you go and, and you eat it yourself and you get yourself entrapped by it. The other picture is one of birth, right? He says, then after, con- uh, after desire is conceived in verse 15, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, you know, my, for those of you, obviously, oh, there are no kids around here today, but you know, I remember when my kids were born, they're like really tiny, right? And now they're bigger than me. How did they get so big? Right? It wasn't fertilizer, right? It's because they kept eating all the food I bought them, right? And here, the picture is sin in ourselves is like compared to a a child, and it's like really tiny first. But if you keep feeding it, and feeding it grows bigger, and bigger, and bigger, and ultimately when it grows to its full size, it gives birth to death. You notice the contrast? You no longer have the crown of life, but now you've fed your sin so much that it's given birth to death instead. And I think that's very true. In both of these pictures, James is saying, look, who ate the lure? The hook was there with the worm. Who, who chose to eat it? And who chose to feed the sin until it grew to death? It wasn't God. It was you. It's your own evil desire. You were the one who kept feeding your sin. And it's a bit like, you know, if you're, if you're addicted to pornography in the net, you're the one who keeps going to the websites. You're the one who keeps searching out all these things. You are the one who keeps looking at all these things. Don't blame God. You're the one clicking the images. So here, it says this very, I guess, interesting and controversial statement, right? In verse uh, 13, For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. Now, how do we understand that? Okay, So because if God is in control of all things, God is sovereign, and God allows me to be tempted, then isn't He tempting me to sin? Well, I think if we understand James, the purpose of trials, testing, is for the development of faith and perseverance and ultimately to finish the race to get the crown of life. That is the purpose of God's trials. Okay, Remember the word here is trials and testing. right? 
That is the purpose of God's testing. The, the intention of the goal of God is for you to undergo this testing, whether external or internal temptation, and go through it to come out stronger. But, if you look, your decision is to give in to that temptation, that, that trial. Instead of strong, getting stronger in your faith, you gave in to it and it, you fed it and fed it and, until it grew so that it gave birth to death for you. So don't say that God is tempting you in the sense where you give in to sin. Because God doesn't want anybody to die and God doesn't want anybody to sin. The, the, the temptation which comes to you rather is for the building up of your faith. So the whole point here is not that you will never, be, you will never sin as a result of temptation. But the point here is that you must keep persevering. You must keep enduring. You, if you fail once, get up again and don't sin again. If you fail again, just keep going on to resist sin. Don't feed that temptation. Because if you keep feeding it willfully, feeding it more and more, that sin will just lead to death. But rather, do what God's wisdom wants you to do with that temptation, which is to persevere through it so that you will endure and come out of stronger faith and get the crown of life. In verse 17, it says, Every good and perfect gift come is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Now, one of the things that we struggle with mightily when we, when we are down in suffering is, is God a good God? Is God a good God? Uh, is God really there? I remember um, I was watching this movie this week on, on Blu-ray, uh, this movie called Silence, right? It's, it's a very uh, thought-provoking movie and it's about suffering, real suffering, much greater suffering than any of us would suffer uh, by these missionaries when they went to Japan and they were persecuted and oppressed. And one of the questions that kept coming up by this uh, Jesuit priest was, you know, where is God? Why is God putting me through this? Is God really good? Is God really there? And this passage says that God is a good God. He is a good God because every good and perfect gift is from above. And God does not change. Right? God is a good God because He already gave you Jesus Christ. He already gave you salvation. And God is not going to change from a good God to a bad God just because the circumstances of your life have changed. And he says that in verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. And he says, how do we know that God is a good God? Because God has already given us birth into salvation through the word of truth that we've received. We didn't save ourselves, God saved us through Jesus Christ. And He saved us through the preaching of that word about Jesus to us. And He says we are first fruits for this new creation, a people saved in His family. Now, first fruits in the Old Testament 
was always a, a ceremonial temple uh, sacrificial language about how if I have a whole crop of uh, tomatoes, say, I would give the first fruits that sprouted from my tomato patch and give it to God as a representation of all the rest. And he says, look, you are already saved and you are a promise of all the other people who will be saved in the future. And that's how you know that God is a good God. Because God already chose to give you birth into salvation. So hold on to what God has given you and persevere through suffering, external suffering and internal temptation. Now as we come to the end of this passage, I was very careful to reflect that suffering, whether it's external or internal, is not an academic subject. It's not just theory in my mind. For many of us, it's a real reality. You suffer. We suffer physical ailments. We suffer persecution. We suffer bad bosses. We suffer, uh, you know, pains and aches. We suffer people not wanting to know us because we believe and we live out certain things. It's real pain. You know, you, you, you struggle to sleep at night. You question why these things are happening. You wonder how long it's going to last for. But this passage, I think to me, is really important because it shows us that God is a good God. You know, it's so easy as you go through this to miss the theme. God is good. God doesn't change. Good gifts come from God. God has already given us eternal life. God has saved us. We are the first fruits of a new creation. And therefore, from God's wisdom, even though we struggle in living through suffering, we need to see it as a strengthening of our faith, where our faith is being matured and perfected and completed, and where at the end, we will receive the crown of life. Don't forget, we are already in that high position It's not as if we're in a low position, we're working our way up to the high position. We're already in the high position because God has put us in the high position. Don't lose that high position because of suffering. Don't abandon God just because you're suffering. I've seen people, I'm sure why I've seen people too, who have abandoned God because of suffering in this world. But in the light of eternity, in God's wisdom, that's such a foolish thing to do because your suffering in this world doesn't change who God is to you, doesn't change your salvation, and doesn't change your heavenly destination. So whether you are suffering today or in the future, I hope that today's passage is really a word that you will keep with you. Endure, rejoice in suffering even. Because God is using it to bring your faith to maturity and completion. And when we look back from eternal life, we will see that it will all be worth it, that it's actually all in God's plan and He is in control. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we look at your word in the book of James, that you will help us to see how you are a good God, that you are a God of heavenly light, unchanging, not like shifting shadows. And that your will for us 
is that we would persevere and our faith would become mature and complete, lacking in nothing as we go through the trials of this world. Help us to see, dear Father, that we live in exiles in this world and that we will face suffering if we are strong Christians. If we are 100% loyal to you and to Jesus, if we commit wholly to your heavenly holy standard, if we are convicted on the truths of the power of Jesus as your son, of his resurrection, of the miracles that he did, of the way that you can speak to us. Dear Father, help us to see and expect that we will receive suffering and persecution. We pray too that we may persevere through the internal temptations that we may face, that we will not feed our temptations so that it will give birth to death for us, but rather, dear Father, that we will keep resisting temptation so that we will, in the end, receive the crown of life. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at bcpc.sg.